0: Welcome to church this morning. We're uh, continuing on in our series here on uh, Free Methodist Ethos, the idea of what are some of the key values and things that are, are present um, for for this church because this church is under the uh, denomination of the Free Methodist Church in Canada. Um, but it, it's, it's, it's not just because of the denomination. It's because of the way we see and the way scripture is shaped. I don't know. Did airplay come up there at all or no? No one's seen that yet, eh? We'll try and get. We'll see. Well, I'll give a few minutes. I think we'll we'll go with. Uh, I've got a backup at the back. We'll go with the PowerPoint at the back, and uh, I'll get started here, and we'll get into it. So why don't you pray with me as I feel like this topic this morning is going to need a little prayer. How's that sound? <laughs> Amen. <laughs> Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you for the fact that um, you've, you've created us uniquely, Lord. And, and even that means just not just this church, but other churches, even across this city, who, Lord, have looked honestly at this topic through the Bible and have come to different conclusions. And so, Lord, now I pray that the truth of, of sort of the summary of what Augustine said is that in the essentials we would have unity, in the non-essentials we would have liberty, and in all things we would have charity, that we could have that attitude this morning, Lord, as we approach the Scriptures. May you give me peace. May you give the hearers of the word this morning ears to hear and eyes to see what you have for them this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. So one of the things, just like a forewarning, like a warning signal, getting a, a, just got to get this out here. I did a walk through this message, and it came out around a little over 45 minutes. I'm sorry. I looked at it, I was like, what do I take out? What do I do? And it's just like, so uh, I hope you guys had coffee this morning, because we're just trudging through. Here we go. All right. But before we begin this morning, I want to do something. I realized recently that um, my great-uncle George, who was a Christian, found out that he, um, that he died before being baptized. So I'm wondering if someone would like to come up, and I'll, I'll pour this water over their head so I can baptize them on behalf of my dead uncle. Is any, any volunteers? Oh, Jared's willing to do it. <laughs> Thank you for following the truth of Scripture, Jared, because 1 Corinthians 15.29 says this, Now, if there is no resurrection, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized for them? That is a rather strange verse in the Bible, is it not? How many of you have ever baptized someone on behalf of the dead? Okay. In your mind, think right now, how many verses you've heard baptism be about something we do for living people? How many verses do we have about baptizing someone who was a dead person. We have this one odd reference, which most people really don't know actually how to handle this. Uh, Some people say it was a weird practice at the time, but the reality is, is you can't just land only on one scripture without stepping back and looking at the whole scope of scripture and seeing how that fits in with the totality of scripture. So over here, we have baptism as something that you do for a living person. And over here, we have baptism that you do on behalf of a dead person, something that Paul does not actually say is wrong. So you step back, you look at it, and we're like, I think we're going to stick with baptism of live people because there's not enough to really go on here to really know what we do with that. So this is why we don't baptize people on behalf of the dead. So next slide. We're going to talk about women in ministry this morning. This is a polarizing topic for many people in different churches. And some might say, okay, well, if this is a polarizing topic, Pastor, why, why speak on it? Like, we know people have different views on this. Everyone has their scriptural reasons for their position. Well, can't we just get along and say, let's just avoid the issue? I'm going to say no, because we need to first talk about this issue I'm not going to break fellowship with other churches, that other denominations, because of the reality of the Free Methodist ordaining women. But people come from different backgrounds in this church. Not everyone here came to this church because you're Free Methodist. You came because of many different reasons. Probably the welcoming family atmosphere is one of them. Maybe it's the worship, or possibly it might be the preaching. I doubt it, but we're moving on. So here's the reason why we have to talk about it at this church. Because at this church, under the free of Canada, we do ordain women. So you can probably see where I'm probably heading with this message. But the reality is, is if the next pastor that we might hire at this church, as Ken's retiring and, and as we continue to grow, there may be an opportunity to look for another pastoral position. I need the church, this body, for the sake of the unity of this church to hear me on this so that if I were to hire a female pastor, you're not like, oh, well, I wonder why he's done that, because my Bible says this and this and this and this. So for us in this church, for the sake of unity of this church, I need to be able to share how I've understood this. Also, why the Free Methodist Church in Canada has has done this since 1911. Women have been ordained in the Free Methodist Church. There's another reason. I believe in this day and age, for the church to be taken seriously, I believe that it's actually an error for us not to ordain women. Women can be university professors, they can run for president, they can govern the British parliament, but the church in some places still say they can't be a pastor. (laughs) Now this does not mean that we should throw out scripture because our culture now values something And that we're going to go with our culture and look into scripture. I am going to inherently say we do not do that. We let the scripture speak. And we move forward. Slavery has been abolished. And the seeds of this beautiful liberation movement were found in scripture. Even though Paul did not explicitly condemn it. The seeds for remaining in slavery... Were also found in scripture and it's actually interesting i was reading a book where the argument for slavery a guy was doing a a, a phd on this and he went back and he was reading all the documents about slavery and he realized something he was reading the same arguments in the uh mid 1800s that he was reading in the mid 50s about why women cannot be ordained based on the bible there were very similar arguments just not the exact same passages But the argumentative sort of trajectory was very similar. Is there enough evidence in Scripture to say yes, God allows, even blesses the role of a female pastor? Even with some verses that you already probably have in your mind that might suggest otherwise. So let's dive in. So here are... um, Here are a diversity of opinions that I've heard on this topic. And this almost alone should alert you to the idea that people have many views on this. We can have women who can preach but not pastor. We can have women be missionaries but not pastor. We can have people who can women who can pastor but not lead pastor. We can have lead pastor but not be bishop. We can have people teach Sunday school to kids but not older men. We can have women teaching Bible studies but not pastor. We can have women only teach Bible studies to other women. We can have women who are ordained. We can have women who are not ordained. Just to name a few. Now imagine you were a woman who feels called by God to lead In some sort of way. And serve his church. And you now have to navigate these waters. And the great amazing thing about this is you don't know that person's opinion until you step out. And then you get met with it. And it's any number one of these. Any one of them. For me as a man to serve God in whatever capacity I felt called to. Sky's the limit. For many women in many churches the sky is as low as whatever ceiling is common on this page right here. B.T. Roberts, and he's gonna be one of my main sources for this sermon. The reason I've chosen B.T. Roberts's book for the main reason or main source of this sermon is very very important. One of the critiques of this is that women being pastors is only a result of feminism and we're letting our culture tell us what to think. B.T. Roberts wrote this book that I'm gonna be using as a main source for this in the mid to late 1800s. He published this probably around 1870 something and he was claiming the ordination of women as central to scriptures well before feminism, even before women had the right to vote. So we're gonna look at these scriptures here. This is his comment though. This is a quote here from BT Roberts. Though Christianity Has greatly ameliorated the condition of women, it has not secured for her, even in the most enlightened nations, that equality which the gospel inculates. Let's dive into our Bibles now. Let's start with the Old Testament. We're going to start with before the fall. Why do we start with before the fall? Because it's foundational to understand the way that God had wanted and ordered things before the fall. So let's read in your Bibles Genesis 1.27. I have it there for you. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground." This is shared dominion. It doesn't say to to Eve, you're the one who has to make sure your call is to be fruitful and multiply. Adam, your call is to make sure you tend to the the animals. It is shared dominion. A little bit further down, it says, let them have dominion over the fish in the sea. Them, shared dominion. Pre-fall, There is no ordering of man above women. There is male and there's female, and they're both inherently made in the image of God. Some will say, well, the Bible talks about man being made first and how important this is. And they'll say, you know, God gave Eve as a helper, you know, as a way of making sure she somehow pre-fall comes under man. The word helper in verse 18 of Genesis is easer. This word in scripture in Hebrew is more attributed to God himself. Multiple times in the Hebrew language, in the Psalms, it says that God is our helper and our shield. If we were to think that there's any sense of hierarchical ordering in the word Ezer, you're going to have to then argue to me that God is under us because God is known more often in scripture as a helper than women are. God is saying, I am a helper to you, I am giving helper to you in the form of Eve. I am giving a part of myself. I am giving a part of my image to you so that you may have shared dominion over the entire earth. Commentator Adam Clark flushes this out, this word helper, what it really conveys. When he stretches out the language, he says this, that the word help literally is defined as standing opposite to or before this, and now I quote, implies the woman was to be a perfect resemblance of the man, possessing neither inferiority nor superiority, but being in all things equal to himself. So now we have to look at after the fall. What happened after the fall? To Adam, this is part of this is part of the curse. To Adam it says, I will put anemone between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers and to eve he says this this is really powerful look at this your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you now there's one way people like to think of this they like to think god has instituted now a new order so there's a hierarchy now of god adam eve and animals But you have to see that this is the result of sin. This is a result of sin. It is not the natural ordering. Sin causes our world to be ordered this way. Sin causes men to fight with their wives. Sin causes men to have his f- children fight with other people. It's sin that causes women to desire the love of a man who would then take that love, spit it in her face, and rule her with tyranny. The most powerful thing about all of the scriptures is that these first few chapters in Genesis are foundational to the rest of scripture. And from this moment it talks about the woman uh, having birth to a son and and that Satan would strike his heel but he would crush his head. The rest of scripture is a picture to get us back to what God had wanted for humanity. The gospel restores our relationship with God. It restores our, our relationship with others, clearly. So if the gospel can heal the curse of Adam, the curse of anonymity, then can the gospel also cure the curse of a woman living under a man who would lord it over her? What would the gospel do but make them, as Galatians 3.28 says, there is now neither Jew nor Greek nor male nor female nor slave nor free. So you may ask, is there evidence that women ruled over men? Because in Ephesians, it talks about a man being the head of the wife. Now, how many of you have heard the term, man is the head of the home? Okay? It's not in scripture. It says the head of the wife. But there's a real key in understanding Ephesians. We're about to get to a few really important cases. This is in chapter 5 in Ephesians, by the way. It says that the husband is to be head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. So we instantly think, well, he's the authoritative power over the church, Right? That's what it is. The head of Christ is more connected to different types of sounding things. And these are the things that it sounds like. Giving of abundant life, helping her to flourish, saving her, loving her, giving himself for her, dying for her. Those are just, you can, you can write those down or I can email those to you later and you can look them up. That is what headship is supposed to be like. It is not meant to be My word is final, and you better submit to me, woman. How many of you have heard the gospel of Jesus say the last shall be first and the first shall be last? If you're going to lead, if you're going to be head the way Christ is head, then you die first. That is the call of headship on a man. You die first. All right, let's jump into the Old Testament here now. Priests were only men, and they were the only teachers of the law, yes, But any Jewish person knew one thing and one thing is that prophets were more important and they were even respected above priests. So much so that Moses and Abraham are known as prophets. But so was Miriam. She was in the same classification of prophet as her brothers, as deliverers of all of Israel. Exodus 15.20 says this about Miriam. And I sent before thee Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. Same sentence, same line. Micah 6.4 says this. I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you also, Aaron and Miriam. She wasn't just leading a Bible study to the other ladies. She wasn't just giving vision to the cooking tent. She was helping lead the entire nation of Israel and was getting, given credit for it as a prophet of the Lord. Judges 4.4, Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lepithodoth, was leading Israel at that time. She was leading. She was also prophesying. She was also commanding an army. She was appointed by the Lord so much so that Barack, this is like one of her generals, this is what he said to her. Think about how infected he is by her leadership for him to say this. I'm going to say it more like a dramatic, like you'd see in a movie, like he's got sweat on his face and dirt. And he's about to go into battle. If you go with me, I'll go. But if you don't go with me, I won't go. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. Okay. You have to picture that scene. He says if you don't go, I won't. That is someone who has been infected by courageous leadership. Oh, and it says she was married. I've actually I've actually had people say to me, well, like how could a woman be a leader still be a wife? I don't know. Somehow Deborah still did it. I could even hear some like coy like really Really, like, intensely chauvinistic male going, yeah, they probably just pronounce this rame wrong. It's probably not lapithodoth. It's probably lapith dog. That's probably what it was. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry for that one. There's grace and love in the fellowship of Christians, isn't there? Okay. Those are only some examples of women leaders in the, in the Old Testament. There are others we don't have time to, to cover. Let's jump to the New Testament because everyone's like, okay, we got to get here. We know where we're going, Pastor. Let's get there. So let's go to these two very influential verses. 1 Timothy 2, to 12, 1 Corinthians 14, to 35. A woman should learn in quietness and in full submission. He's making this really easy on us, by the way. Paul, thank you for this. I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man. She must be silent. 1 Corinthians 14, 33 to 35, In all congregations of saints, women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in church. This is why I prayed at the start, by the way, in case you were wondering. All right, if we took these at absolute 100% face value, these are talking about ordering worship, we're talking about in church, these are where these contexts of both these verses come from, then we have to ask ourselves a question. Why do we let women teach Bible studies but not preach? Why do we let women preach but not pastor? Why would we let women pastor but not lead pastor? Why would we let women pastor but not be a superintendent and bishop? Why do we let women pray? Why do we let women sing? B.T. Roberts, again, this is coming from that 1870 sources. He says this about 1 Timothy 12 and 1 Corinthians 14. No denomination applies these passages literally. If they did, they would not allow, one, women to sing in church, for to sing is to not keep silent, two, nor to pray, for the same reason, three, nor to testify, for to testify is to speak, four, nor to teach in the Sabbath school or elsewhere, for the statement in general, I suffer not a woman to teach, nor five, nor write religious books or religious periodicals, for this is to teach. So let's place these over here for a second. We're coming back to these, I promise. I'm not just leaving them here and just letting you. I'm going to help us with those. But before I do that, I want to walk into other parts of the New Testament that talk about women and leadership. So if these passages could be back to the original baptism idea, if there's a lot of scriptures that point in the direction of women being leaders and there's these two outliers, we have to look at scripture as a whole. It's very important for us to do that. So let's look at silent-breaking, church-speaking women of the New Testament. You ready? Let's go with me here. Philippians 4.3. Help these women who have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Help these women who have contended at the gospel, Like Clement. Clement is known as being a minister. He's thought of actually as becoming the Bishop of Rome. It says that these women assisted Paul in the similar manner of the gospel as Clement did. There's nothing here to suggest other than they ministered the gospel through preaching and teaching. What about Acts 18, 24 to 26? Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos A native of Alexandria came to Ephesus. He was a learned man with thorough knowledge of the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately. Though he knew only the baptism of John, he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained him the way of God more accurately. I permit not a woman to teach, So did Priscilla not participate in correcting and teaching him? Was that only her husband? If so, why was she mentioned first here? Again, this is where an argument becomes from silence. We don't actually know the case. But what we do know is it says that Priscilla and Aquila took him aside, brought him to their home, and taught him the way of the Lord more clearly. So you can say, oh, well, I guess that's a private home. Maybe that's what's going on there. Well, let's go to Romans 16.1. I commend you, our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church of Centra. Now, my, my NIV says servant, but if you look in the footnote, you'll notice that it says or deaconess." The Greek word that calls her servant is diakonon, which is the feminine version of the word deacon, which is where we get our word servant from. Paul calls Phoebe a deacon, Those who don't allow women to be pastors concedes that Paul calls her a deaconess. But what they will say then is that, well, the role of a deacon is not to preach. It's to do the caring of people much like Acts chapter 7, or sorry, Acts chapter 6, where where Paul's basically like, hey, we got to do a lot of preaching, a lot of praying and stuff, so we need other people to care for the widows and all these kind of people. That's what a deacon is, and they'll say that's what it is. And these are often thought of as typically the role of a deacon. Philip is one of the ones that's listed as a deacon. One of those seven in that passage. Here's what it says about Philip in Acts 21.8. Listen to the epithet they give him. Philip, the evangelist. Not only that, he actually had daughters who prophesied. Philip was a deacon and an evangelist. 1 Corinthians 3.5, they use the word deacon in reference to Paul and Apostle, they say this, who then is Paul, who then is Apollos, but ministers. The word ministers there is deacon. B.T. Roberts says this, in short, there is not a single passage in which the word deacon is used to designate an officer of the church where there is any indication that the deacon was not a preacher. There are many passages where those who did preach were clearly called deacons. I know this is a lot we're sitting under here this morning, and stay with me here, because we're going to get to those, those really key passages in one minute. He goes on to say, though, here you see the power of prejudice in even learned pious men. Paul, when called a deacon, our translators call him a minister, but Phoebe, when called a deacon, they make a servant. Why greet Phoebe as the servant of the church of Centra, but not the pastor? Why make mention to her in connection to the local church if she served only as a capacity of being a servant? Why list Priscilla above Aquila? What was the work of Paul? Because it says they shared in his work. But he preached, he prayed, he ministered. And and here's one more example before we get towards where we're headed. Romans 16, 7. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my relatives who have been in prison with me. They are outstanding among the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. So what has happened here is people who do not like women being pastors, let alone apostles, they took the task to try and argue that Junia is actually Junius, which is a male's name. However, Strong's Greek concordance, and in many other ways, that is clearly listed as a feminine noun. There is almost no way getting around it. In fact, no real credible scholar that opposes the view of women still insists that Junius is is none other than a female. What they'll do instead is they'll say, well, she was known among the apostles. In other words, she was just simply someone of noteworthy, to the apostles. They were like, we're over here. Hey, look at Junia. She's really nice. We really like her. She's noted among us. That's what, how they argue it. However, Chrysostom, he's about a third century um, teacher. He believed she was an apostle. Even actually Calvin interpreted this to mean that she was an apostle. Martin Luther, the founder of the Reformation. In German, he translated his Bible to say this who are renowned apostles. He clearly gives her the credit that she was an apostle. That is a high-level leadership in the brand-new church that was taking over Asia Minor. Just before we get to those two key verses, I want to also step back for one second to talk about Jesus. I think that might be important. Did Jesus command women not to teach? No what we do see is women around him all the time. We see men scattered who are afraid. We see women at the cross. We see women at the tomb. We see women given the call to be the very first ones to take the gospel that he has risen to a whole group of 12 men. In Luke chapter 10, we get a picture of Mary and Martha. How many of you guys know the story of Mary and Martha? Pretty good, okay? So we've got... We got Mary, she's sitting at the feet of Jesus. We got Martha, she's in, her, in the kitchen. She's, she's basically looking out and she's getting fumed that Mary is in there not helping her. And we assume, because there's no context of our culture for this, we assume that, Mary, that, that Martha is upset only because she's not getting help. But any Near Eastern person, especially first century, even any Near Eastern person today will know this, that there was a room when there was men in there, there was no women in there. And women were not rabbis. Women did not sit at the feet of rabbis to learn, because that would be pretty ostentatious to do. But where is Mary? She is at the feet of a rabbi. She's at the feet of the Messiah. She's learning. And Mar- and Martha looks in and says, how dare she? She needs to be in here helping me. And Jesus turns to her. And he says, she has chosen what is right. She's sat at my feet and is learning, even in a room that was meant only for men. Okay, here we are, 1 Corinthians and 1 Timothy. Let's start with 1 Corinthians. Women should be silent in church. Well, as stated before, no evangelical church, no matter where they stand in this verse, absolutely takes us to the letter of the law. Maybe the brethren in Christ. They used to. No singing, no Nothing. Preaching is only one way of breaking the silence. Talking again about this passage, Chrysostom, this third century writer, he says, there is apt to be a great noise among them. He's talking about when they gather. Much clamor and talking, and nowhere so much as in the place, the church. They may be all seen here talking more than in the market or at the bath, for as if they came hither for recreation, they are all engaged in conversing upon unprofitable subjects, thus all the confusion so this passage is talking about orderly worship it is not talking about the structure of the leadership of the church it's talking about orderly worship and in this section he says women are to be silent what do we do with this chrysostom looked at what was going on and what paul was talking about and he says this is about orderly worship and it's in this place where he's talking about women being silent N.T. Wright, in a book called Surprised by Scripture, reveals a little bit more as well of what could be possibly going on. And I will admit, this is one way of viewing the scripture. But I think once you hear it, you'll realize that actually makes a lot of sense. So follow with me on this. So what he talks about is that in Lebanon, Syria, Egypt, and other Middle Eastern places, service was, would have been in classical, classical Arabic, But at that time, women were not learned, so they did not know Arabic. They would have known their local dialect. And in in the synagogue at the time, men sat over on one side and women sat on another side. So you have a picture of a place where church is taking place just like this. Men are over here. Women over here, I'm speaking Arabic, and I'm speaking to the men. There might be a, a, a few women who might know it just because they've picked it up, but many are listening to their local dialect. How many of you have already partly fallen asleep if you had someone beside you that was asking you questions about what you're doing next week would maybe start whispering a little bit? Because you don't even know a single word that's coming out of my mouth. I cannot understand the words that are coming out of your mouth. That's from some movie, I think. I don't know where it's comes from. <laughs> I don't know why I did that, but there it is. This is what N.T. Wright says. Picture that, and he says, Anyways, the end result would be that during the sermon in particular, the women, not understanding what would, go, what would be going on, would begin to get bored and talk among themselves. The level of talking on the woman's side would steadily rise in volume, and to the minister would have to say loudly above them, Women, will you please be quiet? And Paul has probably heard many pastors going, "I this is awful. They keep chatting. And he, so he writes with an authoritative apostolic letter saying, women, it's time to be silent in church, please. There's a context here we have no idea about. Again, this is, there's great, great reason to believe this is true. It also says, when you, if you want to know what's going on, what does it say? It says, wait till you get home and ask your husband. Why? Because he's the one who understood it, because it was in his language. So instead of talking about whatever, I won't even go with what the women are telling. I won't even step into that territory. I'm not even going there. I've been, I've been learning. I've been learning. Okay, so, all right. Okay, I'll give maybe that one. Okay, Pastor, what about First Timothy 2.12? That seems... That case, clo- case closed. I permit not a woman to teach, nor have authority over a man. Case closed. Sorry. It's time to... All right, sermon's done. Thanks, guys. No, sorry. I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man. She must be silent. Now, here's something that we miss... Unfortunately, it's because it's in our English. The word translated in this passage, "authority," is "authentian." If you want to go to the next slide here, yeah, okay. "Exusia," "exusia" is the word for authority most used in the Bible. 102 times it's used in various tenses and forms to illustrate the idea of authority, power, or liberty. Like you have the liberty to do something. Okay. "Authentian." That word authority, it's used one time in the New Testament in this form. It's made up of two basic words, self, autos, and entra, arms or armor. Direct translation is to unilaterally take up arms. Or could mean self-appointed or acting as an autocrat. That comes right from my Greek New Testament in Greek in the back in the definition of that word. So my first question is, why does Paul choose a different verb, authentian here, talking about authority, when the verb exousia would have been perfectly well to convey the idea of women don't get power over men? Why would he use a different word? Did he simply find a thesaurus and realize, I use exousia a lot, I I really need to find a new word. (laughs) To think of this is to think English and not Greek. We have how many different sources of languages did, did, did English borrow from? They're like, they're like the basic plagiarizers of all languages. Yeah, I like that word. Let's bring that one in. And Greek is not like that. Every word has very intense, very purposeful meaning. He steps out of 102 uses of the word authority, and he steps into a word called authentian that he only uses once, and he only uses it here. In a 2010 study... Um, using the Thesaurus Linga Greca, basically it's, they did a study on the word Authentian, what happened is, is, they took all the the Greek literature from about a 1200 year span and they digitized it so that it could be searched. They limited the scope of search between 200 years before Jesus and 200 years after, and in the whole scope of 1200 years they only found Authentian used 306 times over a 1200 year span. In the the 400 years, 200 before Jesus, 200 after, of those uses, this is sort of the translation, the connotation that it was most used as. Violence against someone else, like a slayer, slayer of oneself, author of crimes, supporter of violent actions, and authority. Why choose a word that has undertones of authority and violence? A suggested translation of this, word is, of this word is actually in the King James Version. It actually says to usurp authority. I do not permit a woman to usurp authority and teach a man. When you think of the context of Ephesus, this is a letter to Timothy. If you think of the context of Ephesus, you will start to see this might actually make very perfect sense. Ephesus was the place of the largest female only cult to Artemis. It had the largest statue, and it had the largest temple, and all of the priests of that cult were women. In a culture where Jesus has been teaching about the gospel, in a place where Paul has gone in and probably taught something like, there's now no more Jew, nor Greek, nor male, nor female, nor slave, nor free, you can probably hear people going, oh, all right, no gender anymore. Perfect. I'm just going to walk in and take authority. And Paul's saying, whoa, 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 hold on. I'm not saying you take authority by violence. I'm not taking, you don't usurp authority. You don't get to teach if you're the person who's taken over authority. But what you do get to do is if you've been appointed to teach and preach, then there is no sense of usurping at all going on whatsoever. When you think of the scope of the scriptures, the way women led in the Old Testament, the way Paul exhorts women in in Romans 16 and elsewhere, it's hard to take two key texts and make them limit half the population from taking the office of a minister, especially when they are not clear as our English makes them sound. I'm going to do two more things as we close, two important things. One is to talk about um, uh, a personal story uh, of someone who's shared with me about this topic and one uh, about history. So the first one, imagine you have two daughters that are sitting and playing with toys. And, and I have two daughters and they sometimes fight, it happens. And as a parent, you weren't there in that moment. So you step into the room, you see two kids fighting over something. And you're like, okay, what happened? Well, what's gonna happen? Well, she did this and she did that. You get the stories and you're like, I don't know who's telling the truth. I kind of like you more, so it's probably you. No, I'm just <laughs> Any parent just knew exactly what I meant right there, but anyways. But what if there was a third person who had no interest in that, de- that debate at all? They just were sitting on the wall watching it take place. How valuable to you would their, their story be? They're an, uh, an objective observer. They have no interest in that fight at all. Well, let's step into history and learn about a guy named Pliny. Pliny was born about 30 years after Jesus died, and he was basically a governor of an area, and he was tasked by the Emperor Trajan in the first century to go and investigate Christianity. Go and see what's going on. And we have his letters. Uh, I'm reading from a portion translated by Dr. Nathaniel Larner, and this is an excerpt. Um, just a small smidgen of what he wrote back to the Emperor Trajan. Basically, he was given, go investigate Christianity. Find out what's all about these people. Because are they a threat? What are they? What do we know about them? So this is what he says. And now I'm quoting from Dr. Nathaniel Larner's translation from, uh, from Pliny the Younger. Sounds like a rap name now. Sorry. They affirmed that the whole of their fault or error lay in this that they were wont to meet together on a stated day before it was light and sing among themselves alternately a hymn to Christ as a God and bind themselves by an oath not to the commission of any wickedness, not to be guilty of theft or robbery or adultery, never to falsify word or deny pledge committed to them when called upon to return it. He goes on to say in a little bit here, and this is the key for us, after receiving this account, I judged it more necessary to examine, and that by torture, two maidservants, which were called ministers. I have discovered nothing beside a bad, excessive superstition." Here you have Pliny, totally disinterested with what the Christians are doing, other than the fact that maybe they're going to help cause a revolt in my area. The emperor goes, go and figure them out. What are they doing? A couple key things. Right there in the first century he talks about them singing hymns to Christ as God. And then he says, I, I needed to know more so I took two women who were called ministers in this church and I tortured them. This testimony shows clearly that early Christians believed in the divinity of Christ and that women were brave enough to be ministers of Christ during the time of persecution were none other than women. Now, if you imagine for a second, if someone wanted to investigate what was going on in this church, they might arrest a few of you, but you can be bet sure if they want to know everything that's going on here, who are they going to arrest? I rest my case, no. Who are they going to arrest? Probably Bev. (laughs) Me, possibly. Hopefully I've done enough to say, no. They would arrest the leaders. They would arrest the people who are serving. They would arrest the leaders to figure out what's going on. In the first century, there is great evidence to suggest that women were called ministers in the Church of Christ. Beachy Roberts has this powerful quote. We must either go back or we must go ahead. We must either give her equal rights with men, or we must reduce her to the servitude of bygone ages. Either we must be governed by Christian law of love and equity, or we must take a step backwards into barbarism and be governed by the law of brute force. What shall it be? I want to end by sharing this story about a woman who, who, who shared with me her story. From the time she was a little girl, she felt a call to ministry, not just to To play the piano and stuff, but a call to to really in-depth, right in their ministry. But the context in which she lived in, she saw that as being male pastors only, women don't do other parts. So, from a very early age, she was convinced of one fact, that to best serve to the level that she felt God call her to, that she needs to be the wife of a pastor. So she grew up believing, she said to me, that I'm going to be pastor, a pastor's wife. Fast forward a few years, that conviction is still there. She meets a young man, a handsome young man, and he he doesn't seem to be heading towards ministry. He's kind of doing a, a blue-collar apprenticeship sort of kind of job at the time. And she's like, well, I fell in love with him. I believe the Lord wants me to marry him, so therefore some point in the future, not now, but I can work on him, that he'll become a pastor. So they get married, and shortly into the marriage, for the first almost 10 years or so, every year or every two years, she just kind of, hey, you thought about going to Bible college by any chance? And he's like, what? I'm, I'm not a student. I do not know. No, I don't want to be a pastor. She's like, okay, next year. Ever thought about uh, going to Bible college? What is, no. So she, after a few attempts at that, she just kind of quiets that down. And instead of asking that question anymore, she becomes gripped with a ridiculous, out there, anxious fear that he's never gonna be a pastor and therefore he's gonna die young and I'm gonna have to remarry a pastor. That's how convinced she was that she couldn't lead in this capacity, and she became gripped with an anxious fear that her lovely husband would die at a young age. There's a moment where this this man, he is in the hospital from an infection. He's in the hospital for a couple days. She assumes this is it. This is the moment. He's going to die. She cannot hide it even remotely. It's all over her. It's on her face. It's in the way she talks. It's in her emotions coming out. She's like... You can tell, and, and even, she said, even her children, she could see they were picking up her anxiety. And they, too, believed that their dad was going to die in that moment. Fast forward a few more times later, a few years later, he didn't die. She's at a service where a woman is as being basically um, given the right to marry and, and preach. And a leader from a denomination was there. And he took the scriptures, much like I did today, and he exhorted them. He looked at them. He made his best-case argument that women need to be able to be leaders. And for the very first time in her life, after looking at the culture she grew up in, she realized that there was a freedom for her, that it wasn't a calling to be a pastor's wife. It was a calling for herself to be a pastor and lead. And that woman is my mother. If one of my three daughters feels called by God to serve as a minister of this church or another church, this father is going to see that she knows that God has made a call on her life. And she doesn't have to live in fear. She doesn't have to live in the fear that the call of God has given to her is not something fake that she just assumed because of, of this or that. And thankfully, brave women like my mother and other people who have willingly stepped out into, into female ordination have paved the way for her. Maybe, in fact, you're a woman here in this congregation today who has felt released for the very first time to admit that God has possibly called you to be a pastor, and you never let that know be now until now because you didn't know how to deal with these passages. And I would say to you today, stand up today and be counted. Be a Deborah, a Miriam, an Esther, a Priscilla, a Junia, or any other number of women who are influential in the Bible. Let God anoint you and give you the authority he has given to so many others. Amen. Heavenly Father, I pray, Lord, that as I've taken the task to open up your scriptures, I've done it with sincerity of heart. And Lord, I pray that those of us who still will, at the end of this Today still land on different sides of this, Lord. Would you grant us an ability to have liberty in these differences and charity? In other words, Lord, may we be able to still have fellowship. But Lord, I pray that even for the maybe for the first time, someone's heard a, a case for the ordination of women that they've never heard before. Lord, I pray that they they take time to investigate it themselves. And Lord, uh, I pray this morning that if there's a young lady here. Maybe even a teenager. That they know for a fact that God has called them to minister. Maybe they're not sure exactly what that means. Maybe missionary or maybe pastor. Or maybe youth leader. Lord, right now, by your Holy Spirit, I pray that you touch them on the shoulder and they feel the power of your Holy Spirit right now fall upon them. And Lord, you would affirm in them the ability to step out and lead in whatever way the gospel demands of them. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would unleash on us a spirit of generosity, of grace, of servitude. Lord, would you teach us how to lead. And Lord, would you let the women in this congregation know that they stand counted and that I affirm them and that they are loved for the work that they do for the gospel. In your name we pray. Amen.